Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Friday, December 11. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Fran. And Jan, tomorrow is a very special birthday for... The Paris Climate Agreement. (laughs) It turns five. Happy birthday, Paris Climate Agreement. Yeah, and there's more and more talk about net zero emissions and what that agreement really meant and where the international community is going on climate. So we're going to go back and explain what we actually agreed to and how Australia is perceived in the international community. Australia has always uh, had a bit of a dodgy um, reputation on climate. At times it's done wonderful things, but by and large uh, it hasn't been a leader. And um, and I think we're at really at the low at the moment. So not perceived very well, it would appear. Don't give away the ending. <laughs> I think he gave away the ending. I think we know the ending here. Uh, that's Andrew Heim, and he actually helped draft the Paris Agreement. So he's going to explain... Uh, how it worked and what it means for the debate moving forward. First, let's get into the big news of the day. To Lebanon, where the country's caretaker prime minister and three ex-ministers have now been charged over the Beirut port explosion that killed 204 people and injured more than 7,000 others. Yeah, so according to state media, this group has been charged with carelessness and negligence Unnamed judicial sources say they'd been warned that storing nearly three tonnes of ammonium nitrate in a warehouse wasn't safe. Yeah, PM Hassan Diab resigned days after the tragedy in August, um, but he did stay on as caretaker PM. He says that his conscience is clear and that his hands are clean. You never really know with this stuff in Lebanon. I don't know if you remember the blast itself. It happened August 4th. It was absolutely massive. I think I I read a report somewhere saying it was among the largest non-nuclear explosions ever recorded. Caused a colossal amount of damage in the city and the country, really. Can you give me a bit of context here? Because, you know, imagine this in an Australian scenario. If, say, there was an explosion in a port, say, in Sydney or Melbourne, I don't imagine the Prime Minister would be charged for it, but that's what's happened here. So why do you think that is? Yeah, look, I think it's become clear over the last few months that there were high-ranking officials, the Prime Minister among them, the President is another one, who knew that the ammonium nitrate was being stored in the port and did nothing about it. What I will say is that nothing is really ever as it seems in Lebanon. It's a very divided country, very politically factional uh, and and you don't really know who's being charged with what and why. There's so much corruption. Um, it could be that the judge is part of one political party and wants to charge this leader over this leader. Um, there could be meddling from other, uh, you know, parts of the kind of political system. There was an investigation into this that was done nationally. It's happened over the last few months. It's been criticised by protesters. It's been criticised by Human Rights Watch because it lacks transparency, um, because there was undue political influence. This stuff happens in Lebanon all the time. So this is no exception to all of that happening. Facebook could be forced to sell off Instagram and WhatsApp. Yes, the tech giant is facing lawsuits from America's federal government and 46 out of the country's 50 states. That's huge. It's accused of using illegal tactics to maintain its market dominance. Here is New York Attorney General Letitia James. For nearly a decade, Facebook has used its dominance and monopoly power to crush smaller rivals and snuff out competition, all at the expense of everyday users. Yeah, so to give you an idea of just how huge Facebook is, it generated $18.5 billion US dollars last year. So that's around about $24 billion Australian dollars. And it actually owns the four most downloaded apps of the decade. Can you guess what they are? I bet you have them all. Yeah, it's it's Facebook, yeah. Instagram, WhatsApp, and 
Messenger, Facebook Messenger. Oh, yeah. Another they, Facebook product. Another Facebook product, exactly. The FTC, which is one of the organisations that's actually looking into Facebook, they're looking into two major acquisitions, which is Facebook buying Instagram for a billion dollars in 2012. That blows my mind, by the way. That was the best business decision ever. Yeah, they killed it. They really did. And then they bought WhatsApp in 2014 for $19 billion. So two mm. years later, they've gone from $1 billion to $19 billion. But they were cleared in um, both acquisitions by the FTC. So the FTC is now suing them, even though it cleared them years ago. And Facebook's definitely going to use that as ammo. Well, they can't find a way to rein in their power, basically. So this is the latest idea to sort of, I guess, break up that power and stop them having so much influence on on other businesses and also society. And nine people with alleged links to the Rebels biker gang have been charged with ripping off cash that was meant for bushfire victims. Yes, they were arrested after a two-day sting in Sydney and the Southern Highlands. Detective Superintendent Robert Critchlow says that they are accused of fraudulently trying to claim $700,000 through a New South Wales government grant scheme and that they got more than $113,000. We'll allege, amongst other things, that the proceeds from these crimes were used to buy clothing, to fix up cars, to put place online gambling bets on internet sites and most disturbingly uh, using to subscribe to pornography websites. Oh, mate, how would you be if you're a bushfire victim that's been struggling to get a government grant and you hear that they've got government grants to look up pornography websites or whatever it is? I did see some reports that it's really actually quite difficult to get government grants and there are some communities that are hiring professional writers to write the grants for them. So how is this for a snub? The WA Premier, Mark McGowan, uh, is the only state leader who has not turned up to the PM's National Cabinet meeting in person um, because he does not want to be in the same room as the South Australian Premier, Stephen Marshall. Yeah, it's full on. Um, They're all at the lodge, everyone except Mark McGowan, uh, and he's doing that to make the point uh, that WA has a hard border with South Australia at the moment. So, you know, Western Australians would have to quarantine for two weeks if they came in contact with a South Aussie. So if it's not good enough... <laughs> anyway, let's let him explain it. Oh, God. I made that clear. I advised the Prime Minister of that uh, a week or so ago. Uh, and it's very important that I set a good example. Uh, how can I expect all other West Australians to follow the rules if I don't follow the rules? So I'm going to follow the rules. Yep, that's his explanation there, the Righto, WA <laughs> Premier Mark McGowan. On the flip side, Stephen Marshall, Premier of South Australia, says there's been no community transmission in the state for 12 days. He doesn't get it. I'll leave it up to Mark McGowan to explain where he's getting his health advice from. I think South Australia has done an outstanding job staring down a second wave, a dangerous second wave here. Maybe he went to that um, Adelaide pizza shop. That's the real story here. I don't know. I feel like I'm on Team Marshall for this one. Come on, Mark. Oh, he's tough. You know, he's standing up for the rules. standing his ground. You know, we saw Gladys Berejiklian get into trouble where she didn't self-isolate after a test. This is the other extreme. Look, I just really want to see all borders open to everyone very, very soon. Fingers crossed. All right. In just a moment, uh, the Paris Agreement explained. What exactly did we sign up to? are at some point in the last few months, maybe years, you will have heard the words the Paris Climate Agreement, the Paris Agreement, the Paris Agreement, the Paris Climate Agreement. Yes, the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Climate Agreement 
is actually having its fifth birthday tomorrow, Jan. Yes, it is. Happy birthday to the Paris Climate Agreement turning five. You'll probably be hearing a lot more about it because of that. And you'll be hearing a lot about achieving net zero emissions by 2050, um, which is something that our government hasn't committed to yet, despite being a signatory to the Paris Climate Agreement. Yeah, so today in this briefing topic, we're going to explain what the Paris Agreement actually is. You might have heard it's about limiting temperature increases to 1.5 degrees. Yeah, you might have heard that um, Donald Trump pulled the United States out of it and that Joe Biden wants to go back into it. It is a little bit complicated, so we're going to go right back to basics and we're going to do that with Andrew Hyam, who is a great person to go back to basics with because he helped draft the Paris Climate Agreement. Yeah, he's now working as the CEO of an organisation called Mission 2020, which is working with businesses to help reduce their carbon footprint. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the briefing. You were there uh, drafting the Paris Agreement. So did you take it personally when Donald Trump pulled out? (laughs) Well, actually, um, I thought it was uh, a real shame for the US. um, But, uh, you know, at the time, I thought it was a bit of an anomaly, a bit of a blip. And um, and thank goodness um, the uh, the US has seen sense and they're coming back into the fold. So you didn't get too sad <laughs> for the well, world. Actually, it did. It kind of had the opposite effect. Um, ironically, I mean, it really emboldened countries around the world, and we haven't seen any other country want to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Quite the opposite. We've seen uh, countries all around uh, the world really redoubling their efforts. Right, so it's almost like do the opposite of what Donald Trump is doing. Is that right? <laughs> Thanks, Donald. Yeah. All right, well, let's let's get right back to basics, Andrew. What did the almost 190 countries actually agree to when they, they signed or, or ratified the Paris Agreement? Well, you know what they really did was they said, we want to have a safe climate. They set a goal to get there, which is what we call net zero emissions by 2050. And then they all agreed... Uh, to make contributions to that effort. And they agreed to come back every five years and increase their ambition. Okay, so let's just stop the interview there for a second. This is where it all gets a little bit complicated Mm. because the actual words, net zero emissions by 2050, they weren't literally in the Paris Agreement, but that goal has become the key focus of the agreement. And even though we signed the agreement. Our government hasn't committed to the net zero 2050 target yet. So how how exactly does that work? Yeah, I've looked into this, Jan, so we can actually explain it clearly. So basically what's happened, and I'll check this with Andrew in just a Please moment. Please do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the legally binding part of the agreement we signed up to was the goal of limiting global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees at the most. Now, the agreement also included the words balancing carbon sources and carbon sinks, which is essentially the same thing as net zero emissions. The agreement then asked the UN's climate change research body, the IPCC, to report back on what was needed to limit temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And when they came back a year after the Paris Agreement was signed, the finding was that we need to balance the carbon sinks and the carbon sources by the middle of the century. Okay, so that seems like I'm I'm kind of understanding that, but I think let us just check with Andrew that that is how net zero emissions by 2050 actually became the key focus. Did I explain it right, Andrew? <laughs> That's great. Okay. You've summarised it perfectly. Okay, 
Hooray. Congratulations. Yes. We've done it. That bit's out of the way. So over the past few months, a lot of major countries have committed to net zero emissions by 2050. Um, even China, the world's largest carbon emitter, has agreed to do that by 2060. But Australia hasn't yet. So, Andrew, what does the rest of the world think about us not doing that? And do you have to go into international meetings and pretend you're from New Zealand? <laughs> Australia has always um, uh, had a bit of a dodgy um, reputation on climate. At times it's done wonderful things, but by and large uh, it hasn't been a leader and, um, and I think we're at really at the low at the moment. But, you know, it's not all about um, net zero. Um, I think what we're seeing around the world is more than that. We're seeing countries translate that into immediate action. It's the double whammy effect. Uh, Australia is not only absent when it comes to net zero, but it's also absent in terms of increasing its ambition in the short term. Can the rest of the world make us change our position? Like if we decide, no, we're not going to get to net zero by 2050, um, is there anything that the rest of the world can do about that? Well, you know, there are, there are things that uh, can be done, uh, I suppose. For example, Australia has other interests in the world um, and uh, it's always a give and take. Um, we all expect that uh, China or the EU or the US will play nicely in terms of trade. And I suppose if Australia isn't playing nicely on climate, um, there there may be consequences for that. Yeah, so that's a really interesting thing that people might not have their heads around yet because it's kind of a new part of the debate. It's trade sanctions for countries that aren't doing enough. And is it right to say that that's because, say, countries that that are doing a lot and I guess making economic sacrifices to reduce their emissions then won't be competitive against, say, if Australia was just producing iron ore in ways that were, you know, also producing lots of emissions we sort of can do it cheaper, but we're not being as responsible. So they want to punish us for that and then therefore make the market fairer. Is that how that's going to work? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, um, all of our trading partners now have moved to net zero. They're mm. all setting course to decarbonise their whole economies. And that basically means that the fossil fuels that we export to the world will no longer be needed. So we better think smart about how we're going to transition our economy and really, it's up to our leaders to be able to show us how to do that, help us as a country to make that transition. So you're saying basically all of the world's major economies are working towards net zero emissions and there's a lot of pressure and even trade sanctions on countries that don't. Does that mean, Andrew, that Paris has worked? Yes, it's working. I think... Uh, the last assessment that was done, 127 countries are committed to net zero. If you add it all up, we're looking like we're on course at the moment for 2.1 degrees Celsius. Now, when I started this 30 years ago, we were on a course for four to six degrees Celsius, and we're gradually getting down. I think over time with this five-year ratchet, we will get down to the zone that we need to be in, but everyone needs to play their part, and that includes Australia. All right. Well, the five-year report card is coming up, so we'll see how Australia fares against the rest of the world in Glasgow. Thanks so much for your time, Andrew. Thank you. So that was Andrew Hyam breaking it all down for us, Jan. So knowing all of that, it's going to be really interesting to see what our government announces over the next few days, weeks and months. Yeah, and what it does leading up to Glasgow next year and how it's perceived by the international community over the next 12 months. 
All right, Jan, we're nearly at the end of another beautiful week at the briefing. Our sponsor is ComBank. They're all about the can-do attitude. So we're going to send you into the weekend with our can-do moment of the week. So what is it? Yes. Well, today we're celebrating a woman called Julie Dunbabin, who is credited with upping school attendance, grades, and even kids' behaviour at three Tassie primary schools. Okay. So how did she do it? The answer is actually pretty simple here. Um, very <laughs> l- bit of engine lunch. lunch. It actually is lunch. Yeah, it's a four dollar hot meal. So last year, um, Julie, who is from the Tasmanian Canteen Association, shout out to you guys. Um, she travelled around the world, basically looking at other schools and their eating habits, and she noticed that most of them they just they sat down and had a hot lunch. So when she came back, she decided to run this four week trial um, at her school, cooking hot, substantial healthy meals on site instead of having the kids bring their own lunchboxes. A small change, but a big difference. Sometimes the can-do thing can be quite simple, can't it? I've been to Europe where um, people come home for lunch and you sit down for a hot meal from school, the whole family gets together. Yeah. It's a very good vibe. So this is a step in that direction. Um, So it's apparently been a massive success, right? The principals say it's made a a big difference to kids' focus and behaviour. Yeah, kids' focus, behaviour. Apparently school attendance has gone up by 80% as well. I'd turn up for lunch. I'd turn up for lunch too. Yeah, wouldn't turn turn up up for maths. I'd turn up anywhere for lunch. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's an organisation called the Menzies Research Institute that's now actually looking into this trial to see if it could... I guess possibly be expanded elsewhere or to see what worked and what didn't and it'll report back later. Yay, Julie. Yeah, I reckon the idea of lunch has got legs. I think we probably don't need another report. How come we don't have a free lunch here? I'm looking at you, executive producer. It's too early. A Podcast One production.